We're going to study familiar passages again this morning, Luke 24 and John 21. I've been so encouraged this week uh, by how the Lord is working in our midst. And I want to share some things this morning um, at the end of our study that I'm confident will just give you such an appreciation for him and, and how great his blessings are. Um, we know that, though, from our own experience, right, that the Lord is good and that his blessings are abundant and that all the experiences we have uh, where we see his hand are just so, so powerful. And we need to just again and again give him praise for that. I want to talk this morning about how we can recognize when the Lord is near and how we can recognize when the Lord is at work and how that builds our faith and how it gives us confidence to move forward with all that he wants to do. Because sometimes when the Lord is moving, we know that we're supposed to follow. We know that it's him. We know that this is the next thing to do. And we want to trust him. And we know that he's providing and that he's leading. But sometimes our hearts are just a little bit hesitant. Sometimes we just aren't quite on board yet with, with where the Lord is. Now, praise the Lord, I have not sensed that with this congregation one bit. But there are times personally and even as a church where we experience that and we, we know it's the right thing. We want very badly not to overthink it. We want very badly to, to just trust, but our minds get in the way. And what we start to do is we start to analyze by sight rather than analyzing by faith. How many know that's a dangerous thing to do? When we analyze by sight, when we just look at what is rather than what the Lord can do even happened to me this morning as I'm getting ready, as I'm going to preach this message that I studied all day yesterday. I even got into the, the, what they call the paralysis by analysis. And I started to look at the obstacles rather than seeing it by faith. And the Lord had to convict me even as we were singing of that. So many times we get caught up in what we see rather than what we don't see, which is what the Lord wants us to see. You know what I'm saying, right? We see what we see, and the Lord says, I don't want you to see that. I want you to see something else. I want you to see what I'm doing. But you're caught up in seeing what you see. Now, hopefully none of us wants to live that way. And, and I think our study this morning will really help us to see the hand of the Lord. And I hope it'll, it'll teach us how to always trust that his ways are the right ways. Let's affirm that. How many know that his ways are always the right ways? His ways are never wrong. Our way is usually wrong. His way is never wrong. He never leads us incorrectly. He never fails us. He never takes his hand off us and says, well, let's see, you do it for a while. Sometimes he does that, but he's always there. The Lord's ways are always right. And Luke 24 and John 21 this morning, I hope we're going to teach us that. Let's look at this in Luke 24. We're going to start in verse 13. The setting for the passage is just hours after Jesus' resurrection. The word hasn't even spread completely throughout Jerusalem yet that he is alive. And we see two of the people who had had hope in him walking back to their village, and they're going home for some reason that we'll look at in a second. Look at chapter 24 and verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. 
And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to them, to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, these things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Notice what they say in verse 21. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said. You would think that would be the end of the discussion, right? Good. They, they affirmed it. No. Him they didn't see. And there's a sense here, just as a break in the reading, that they're saying the women got the word and it was confirmed, but we don't believe it. Because look at what Jesus says next. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus teach about himself? And they approached the village where they were going. Remember, they're seven miles away now. And he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them, shades of the Last Supper. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us out on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, one phrase that sticks out to me as I look at this, and I hope it does to you too, is in verse 16, where it says, their eyes were prevented from seeing him. We would think that the Lord would want everybody to know, that, that the Lord would want these two men that are wandering down this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we would think that he would want them to know, hey, I am alive. But there's a reason why he prevents them from being able to recognize him. And it seems clear from the text that the Lord wanted to hear what they were saying. Now, God knows all things, and God understands every thought in our heart. Nothing's hidden from him. But, but we see sometimes in Scripture the explanation that, that's beyond our understanding that he wants to know what they're saying. He already knows, but he asks them. And here they tell him, because this is, this is kind of a test from the Lord of, what do you really believe? What are you talking about? What's the, what's the conversation? What's, what's the buzz going on among you? You guys have been in Jerusalem. What, what's happening? What, what happened today? Now, initially, and this phrase really caught me, I've never seen it before, it says in verse 17 that when he asks this, they stop and stand still. Like they're walking along and it's like, what? Seriously? You don't know what's going on? The first thing they say to him is, how can you not know what's happened today? How, how can you not understand what, what has taken place? This shows how public the crucifixion was. This shows how everybody in Jerusalem knew what was going on. Maybe everybody in Jerusalem witnessed it. 
But but the whole statement of the day in Jerusalem, the day Jesus was crucified, was the crucifixion. People were not going about their business. This was it. And then notice that they referred to Jesus. Every word the Holy Spirit gives us is important. Notice that they referred to Jesus as a prophet. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word and in the sight of God and all the people. The fact that they referred to him as a prophet shows that they had not completely accepted him as the son of God. Now that he's died, and it kind of doesn't make sense anymore, now they say, well, he must have been a great prophet. And notice that they say that they were hoping that he would redeem Israel. Not, we were hoping he would redeem mankind. We were hoping he would redeem our nation. What does that mean? Did they see him like others did as the one that would deliver them from Rome? Or, or was he the one that was going to deliver them from the corrupt religious establishment? We don't know. But they don't say, we were hoping he was the Messiah. We were hoping he was the one that would deliver us from our sin and redeem us forever and that he would save all people. We were hoping he was that guy. They say, we were hoping he'd redeem Israel. So their faith at this point is incomplete. But but then there's one more interesting detail that they put in. Notice this. Let me see if I can find the verse. Notice this at the end of verse 21. They say, and indeed, this is the third day. This is the third day since this has happened. Now, what's taking place here? By referencing the third day, they're saying, we heard what he said. Jesus said on the third day, they're going to put me to death and they're going to crucify me, but I'm going to raise again. And the disciples never heard it. It it went in one ear and out the other. But apparently these two guys knew somehow that Jesus had said this. So now they say to themselves, it's the third day. And, 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 And Jesus had talked about that. So that begs the question. If they knew what Jesus had said, if they knew he had talked about a resurrection, then why aren't they in Jerusalem? Why are they on the road to Emmaus going home despondent and discouraged? Especially after they heard the women say, we went this morning and the body's gone. And after they heard Peter and John say, we went and verified it because, you know, the women were not real sure, little little bias against women here, we're not real sure, they're a little emotional, you know, the women... And then Peter and John run to the tomb, and the tomb's empty. And it confirms everything that they said they had heard from the angels. But at this point, nobody's buying in. Nobody is saying it's true. This is the confirmation. Jesus is alive. Nobody's saying this. So these men are trudging home. Well, it was the third day, and the women said he's alive, and Peter and John confirmed it, and the angels said it, but I don't know. We're going back. It just strikes me as odd that these men are on the road to Emmaus instead of sitting in Jerusalem saying, when is Jesus going to show up? So when Jesus asks them what they're talking about and they tell him, I want you to look at verse 26, or excuse me, verse 25. Rather than comforting them and rather than saying, hey, it's me, guys, hey, I am alive, it's me. I want you to notice what happens. Instead, he calls them foolish. And he confronts them for their lack of faith. And he says, you're slow of heart to believe the word of the prophets who are foretold this was going to happen. And you're slow of heart to believe the words that you heard this morning. Now, there's a very important spiritual principle here that's a little hard for us to hear. And the spiritual principle is the Lord is disappointed when his children show a lack of faith. 
That one stings, doesn't it? I don't like that one as much as the others that talk about how much he blesses us. The Lord is disappointed. We have to use that word because it's the only word we can pull out of verses 25 and 26. The Lord is disappointed when his children show a lack of faith. We are saved by his grace through faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Without faith, it is impossible to to please him. We're called believers. What is at the heart of belief? Faith, right? So if we're going to be called believers and we're going to walk by faith and we're saved by faith and the just shall live by faith and we can't please him without faith, then how are we going to say anything other than he's going to be disappointed when we don't show faith? When we get caught in ourselves and we look at what we know rather than what we trust, that's when the Lord gets involved. And I want you to notice how he highlights his word here. He says, this is the primary source of your faith. It shows how important it is to him. Didn't you hear the prophets? Didn't you hear what was told to you? Didn't you know the word that was going to take place? The prophet said, there's going to be a savior. They gave you details. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Emmanuel. And he will be from the line of David. Didn't you guys pay attention? Didn't you listen to the word? Didn't you hear the words that Jesus said? Haven't you seen the whole path? Didn't you listen to what the women said this morning? Did did you just miss it? And then to cap it off, you've been listening for three years. Didn't, Didn't you trust what you heard? Why are you heading home? Why are you despondent? Why are you walking back to Emmaus tonight? Why are you dejected? What's going on? I, I, we, we have to read scripture that way, right? Because otherwise it's, oh, you were slow to be of faith. And we read it like we're some English actor that's reading the Bible to us. Don't read the Bible that way. Read the Bible as it happened. What's going on with you guys? Why are you despondent? Why are you going home? Didn't you listen to the prophets? That's how Jesus is talking. Now, as he does this, we see this down in verse 32, and it comes later. Something inside them stirs. As he talks, their hearts and their minds are are churned up in a good way. Faith always needs an impetus. Because it's too easy for us to fall back into our humanity and our fear and our finite thinking rather than being confident in the word of the Lord. This is why the Holy Spirit is so essential because he reminds us of God's word and God's promises, which are our strength and our comfort and our security. But if we neglect that relationship with the spirit, if we resist rather than yielding, if we don't take the word of God and dive into it and tear it apart and understand it and study it and interact with it and say, Lord, teach me what this says. If, if we just put it over here and say, I'll get to it on Sunday and I'm going to live for myself, but I'm going to, Yield sometimes. If, if that's how we're going to live, then our minds are going to get so filled with clutter that has no eternal value that we'll stop hearing the word of the Lord. These men lived and walked with him, and yet they don't have any confidence because their minds are cluttered. And they're caught up with the things that, that are 
full of the day. Listen, we run this risk even, and I, I prayed, Lord, whether I should say this this morning. We need to be careful that we don't get so worked up by what's going on in our society that we lose sight of the promises and sufficiency and victory of the Lord over the enemy. Because we can get so distracted, and that's what the enemy wants. His goal is to get us to be preoccupied with governmental restrictions and the immorality of man and, and, and all the things that get us angry and frustrated and full, of, and full of discouragement that our beliefs aren't being heard. Listen, we should be. We should be irritated. And we should be outspoken. And we should be frustrated. But, but we have to understand that more than that, we have to use that as an impetus to get the gospel out. Because if we get so caught up, look at what's going on, look at what's going on, look at what's going on, and we forget that people need to hear the gospel, then we're going to miss out. Now, what is going on in our culture is not new. Ancient Rome was deeply depraved. The Canaanites sacrificed children live on altars to Baal and Moloch. The, the Ninevites were evil beyond comprehension. The Philistines were brutal. Things that they did are too horrible to mention before lunch. We don't even want to talk about it. Sin and evil and social degeneracy on this level has been seen for centuries. What's getting us is we never expected to see it in our own country. The problem is we can't lose sight of the gospel. Because if we get caught up in those things at the expense of not telling people Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again so you can be saved and delivered from the darkness and destruction of sin. If we don't say that sentence all the time, people are going to see us as radical fanatics who are just upset all the time. And I don't know about you, believer. I don't want to be upset all the time. I want to be full of joy that God saves. And we need to tell people that. We need to tell people that. These men thought they believed. Look back at them. But their faith was shallow. So Jesus talks about the history of God's eternal plan. And their hearts are stoked. And they get to town. And they urge him to stay. And they prepare dinner. And as he blesses the meal, the text says their eyes are open. And they recognize who he is. And in that moment, he disappears. Now think about the emotion and the thought process of that singular moment. The stunned awareness, the, the overwhelming sense of God's presence, the flood of joy that he was really alive, the confirmation of their meager belief, and then the verification that, that what they had felt as they walked and listened was really true. How there had been something different when he talked, how their hearts were just stoked. And they said, wait a second, this is making sense to us. And their faith kind of got strengthened to the point that they said, we need more of this. We, we need to be encouraged more. And, and, and we need to understand God's plan of redemption is being fulfilled. They hadn't seen it before. They hadn't recognized the Lord. They hadn't understood Jesus. But now they understood exactly what God was doing. And verse 23, look at it, tells us that their understanding and renewed faith wasn't just because Jesus was sitting there. The foundation of their belief 
was built on the sufficiency of his word and the evidence he had shown them. And they confirm it to each other as soon as he disappears. Hey, did you feel it too? Wasn't your heart burning? Mine was. Oh, when he talked. Oh, now it makes sense. That was Jesus. Oh, man, I just, I was so discouraged when he showed up. And then we started walking on my heart. I love the phrase. My heart burned within me. That's what the word of God does. The word of God stokes our heart like jabbing a fire that's dying and the flames start to pop up and we feel the warmth. That's what the word of God does. And they confirm it to each other. And then they say, we got to get back to Jerusalem. And they run seven miles in the middle of the night. Not exactly safe. I don't know about you, I couldn't do seven miles right now. But they had seen the Lord. Now turn over for a second to John chapter 21. Let's look at that for a moment. Because there's a phrase that stands out in the story of the disciples fishing that we studied last week. When Jesus shows up on the shore. This is a few days after the passage we just read. And we studied Peter last week and his conversation with the Lord that kind of challenged his compromise and affirmed his calling and restored him. But before that happened, I want you to see back in chapter 21, verses 4 to 7. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on and threw himself into the sea. Now, I misspoke last week. I said that it was Peter that said that, but it was actually John. And he's the only one of the four gospel writers to, to give this account. I want you to notice in verse 4 that none of them, including John, initially recognized that it was Jesus who was standing less than 100 yards away from them, close enough to talk to them because of the amphitheater that the Sea of Galilee is. He's close enough to call out to them and say, do you have any fish? When they say no, he says, try the other side of the boat. Now, now for an experienced Galilean fisherman who also happened to be a stubborn Jewish man, that was probably a hard command to follow. Like, who's this guy? We worked all night. There aren't any fish right now. Who's, who's, this, who's this guy to tell us cast on the other side of the boat? I don't think so. What's he know? He's on the shore. Hey, come on out here. Let's see how good you are. They never say that. They do not recognize him, but immediately they follow the command. And it's at that point when they pull in this huge swarm of fish. Fish aren't a swarm, right? What are they? I don't, it doesn't matter. They pull in a whole uh, a school. Perfect. All right, good. You went to school. I didn't. They, they pull in a whole school of fish. And as they're pulling it in, John looks at Peter and goes, it's the Lord. And Peter, Mr. Impulsive, Mr. I'm so in love with the Lord and I just want to be close to him. Peter goes right into the water. I mean, he, the guys are like pulling in like, Peter, we need help. Peter's already swimming. I mean, he's, he's halfway to shore. Now, this is wonderful because there is a moment of recognition. Look at it. It's right here in verse 7. There is a moment of recognition. 
that this has to be the Lord, that he is present and he's working and there's no other explanation possible. Now, that leads us to the question of the morning. And it's particularly relevant as we enter this next stage of our ministry and we make this very significant move into this new building. For some of us, this topic is very personal. Some of us, this is what's going on in our lives. You're seeking the Lord's leading and His direction. And you want to be sure it's Him, that it's not just some deception of the enemy. I remember this being a big debate early on in my ministry. Lord, what are you doing? How are you leading? What's the next step? Is this what you want me to do? And it's reappeared at times, many times. You know some of those times where, where I've just kind of said, Lord, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing things this way? What are you allowing? What am I supposed to learn? Is this your leading or is this the enemy trying to deceive me? That's even come up with the building. Is this your step, Lord? Is this what you're doing or is this just something we want? So here's the question. How do you and I know when it's the Lord? How can we be sure that it's Him leading and not just what we want or not what we don't want or not what feels right or not what's easiest? or not what makes the most logical sense. You see, before they recognized the Lord, the disciples on the road to Emmaus were full of doubt and discouragement and despair and had no leading. But once they saw it was the Lord, there was no doubt. For the rest of their lives, they never questioned the Lord again. And they ran back to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, if you look at the parallel passage in the book of Mark, it says that when they went back and told the disciples who were still sitting in the upper room, it says in Mark, the disciples still didn't believe. Only after Jesus appears to them, which happens right after that, the disciples from the road to Emmaus come back, they go to the upper room, the disciples are all sitting there, and they say, it's confirmed what the women said, what Peter and John saw, we just saw Jesus. We, we, we ran seven miles, we, we did it quickly, and, and, and we got here, and we want to tell you, we, we were just with Jesus, and, and he taught us, and you can't believe what that was like. Well, you can, because you walked with him, but I'm telling you, our hearts burned within us, and, and he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he disappeared, and we knew. And the disciples still say, nope, nope, don't believe it. Can you imagine the, the hesitation? Right after they say, nope, guess who shows up? Oh, it's Jesus. Right after that, he says, I'm here. And from that moment on, the disciples never look back. From that moment on, they become unshakable in their faith and bold in their witness, and nothing was going to stop them because they knew that it was the Lord. And when you know it's the Lord, following him is the only option. So how do we discern that? What evidence have we seen, even in the last week, that the Lord's at work? Turn back just for a second to Luke 24. 
there are four distinguishing marks of God's presence and God's leading and God's hand of blessing that come out of these texts. Four distinguishing marks. Let me go through them quickly, okay? Number one, in verse 25 of Luke 24, the first way that we can know that it's the Lord is that stubborn, hesitant, doubtful hearts are softened. You know when the Lord's at work, when the stubborn, proud, hesitant, doubtful heart is softened. Anytime we see somebody receive Christ, anytime we see somebody accept the gospel and say, yes, that's right, I'm a sinner, I need to confess that sin, I need to turn from sin, I need to accept what God has so graciously given me through Christ. Anytime we see a heart be softened by that, it's only the Lord, right? It's not somebody's dynamic preaching. It's not some great choir. It's not that there was great fellowship or that the room looked pretty. It was because the Lord worked. And when hearts are softened, we can see the Lord working. That's why when you look back at these verses, his scolding of them seems a little harsh But the text shows us that the reason for it was the end goal of what he was doing. In the wake of the evidence, they had not believed. We can't know what their hearts were, but we do know two things. Every person's heart is resistant to yield its pride. Every heart does not want to give up its pride and trust in the word of God. And it is human nature, second, to look at tangible evidence instead of what is only logical by faith. So, that's why the work of the Holy Spirit is important, because the Holy Spirit works every day to break us of our pride. He works every day to, to, to tell us to die by self, to teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. And I'm going to tell you, I've been a believer almost 40 years. Even that long as a believer, our pride is still so strong, isn't it? That's where you say yes or amen. And we don't want to, right? Because our pride's strong. I am a proud person. I am full of pride because that is the nature that fights against the spiritual nature that God's given us. And God says, Rhodes, I got to break you of that. Because the only way you can walk with me and trust me instead of living in fear and doubt and resistance is to be broken. But when I'm at work, guess what? your heart's going to be softened. And you're now going to hear me and see me at work. And that changes everything. Look second at verses 32 to 34. The second way we know it's the Lord is that faith is stoked beyond any point of doubt and hesitancy. Look at their words in verse 34 because they're telling the 11 disciples and the women and the inner circle who's so close to Jesus. Look at the words. They say, the Lord has really risen. In other words, none of us believed it when they said the Lord is risen. But let us tell you now, the Lord is really risen. Now, it hit me. They wouldn't need to say that if the disciples were having a worship and prayer service in the upper room. If they came back and the disciples were praising the Lord, oh, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you have defeated sin and death like you said you would. We're so thankful that the cross is in the end. We're so thankful that that tomb that we saw this morning is empty and the angels said, you're alive and praise the Lord. Oh, we're going to praise you all night. That's not what's happening, is it? They get back and the disciples are sitting there. 
But the testimony of the women, no. But Peter and John, no. But we just saw him on the road to Emmaus, no. We don't need to have our faith stoked if our faith is strong. But their faith was just the opposite. They didn't believe. They weren't praising the Lord. They were hiding and fearful and hesitant. And these two men, Cleopas and Simon, are distinguished in the fact that they did believe. Jesus' closest disciples didn't still believe. Which makes us sure that the Lord's presence and near and that he's at work is that our faith explodes. All anxiety, all uncertainty, all reticence is removed and our faith gets stronger. Listen, let me say something to you as the pastor of this church, which is a humbling position. We are facing our own set of challenges in this move. Financially, we will save money each month, but we're going to have to spend to get the building ready for our congregation and for the community. In terms of practical ministry, we may grow in numbers. We may grow in what we do in ministry, which is going to mean more volunteers and changes in what we've known. In terms of location, it may alter who we reach, the way we minister, and it may bring challenges that stretch us. But let me say to you, this is not the time to shrink back in faith. This is not the time to shrink back or to become nervous. Oh, Lord, I wonder if you're going to provide. We're having to do a lot. and Is this worth it? Listen, the Lord has done so much already to prove that he is in this. And he has opened the doors wide for this next phase of our ministry. Where are we going to be in two or three years? I don't have a clue, and neither do you. We may be in heaven. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wherever the Lord leads, we've said it since day one. Wherever the Lord leads, we'll go. It's unknown, we're going to follow. And that's part, I hope you see it this way, that's part of the excitement of this ministry. Wherever the Lord leads, we're going to go. When the time comes to take the next step, we'll take it. And you know what? He will always show what it is. Always. Third way we know the Lord. Back in John 21, don't turn. Is that forgiveness and restoration takes place. When the Lord is at work, forgiveness and restoration takes place. We studied it last week, how Jesus both confronts and reassures Peter that following the three denials, that Peter's heart is sincere and that he is restored. And then when Jesus forgives Peter, he gives him a huge assignment and says, on you, I'm going to build the church. And Peter lives up to that in a great way. This is the amazing grace of God. Not just that he forgives us and gives us a new nature, which how many know would be far more than we ever could be. But not just that he forgives us and gives us a nature. He also gives us an assignment of trusting us with the gospel. How can this be? He trusts us with the gospel. And then he says, go tell people what I've done. Now that's our assignment. The message is one of eternal forgiveness and restoration for him. And the evidence of that, he says, according to what Jesus says, the evidence of that being true in your life is that you will love one another. So how is love shown? Love is shown by being willing to forgive each other for our faults. Love is shown by being unified in our thinking, by being at peace, by letting things go that shouldn't aggravate us so much where we just get caught up and we can't let go of it. 
we have to know when the Lord's working because it brings unity and restoration. And we know that the enemy hates that. The enemy will never do something that brings stronger faith in Christ, that draws people to Christ, or that unifies believers. So when we see things that draw people to Christ, help them mature in Christ, and unify believers, we know for a fact that it is of the Lord because the devil cannot act outside of his character. Now that's why they know in John 21 that it was the Lord. Not because they pulled in 150 fish, but because Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you were the first one in the water and you should have been the last one in the water. See, do you love me? Because you do, I forgive you and I'm going to use you in a powerful way. What happens next to Peter and the disciples is the part we usually want to start with. Which is why we tend to not appreciate the presence of the Lord as much as we should. Why we tend to be cautious and tentative and and uncertain instead of trusting the Lord far more than we should. The, The Spirit gives us the context of the first three to get us to the fourth. Because the first three principles of knowing the presence of the Lord are the prerequisite for number four. Our hearts have to be softened and our faith has to be strengthened and our relationship has to be settled. Listen now before we know and understand the Lord's ways. If we try to shortcut that progression, if we try to say, Lord, I want to know your will, but my heart's not going to be softened to it, and I'm not going to trust it until you prove it to me, and, and I've got a problem with this believer over here, but I don't care. Just show me what you want and what I'm supposed to do. If we try to shortcut that progression, God's going to say, you're not going to understand what I'm doing. I could lay it out on a silver platter for you and tell you this is every step I'm going to take. But if your heart's not right, you won't get it. So get your heart right first. And that's essential. Look at the last one. Because the fourth way to know it's the Lord is that we receive greater clarity about his ways and his leading. So much of our desire as believers is to know what the Lord's doing and when and why. One of the biggest underlying reasons why we want to know this and what we're hesitant to admit out loud. This is going to be hard. You ready? One of the biggest reasons why we want to know what the Lord's doing is we want to approve it. We want to make sure that we're okay with it. Now, let's be very honest this morning. We're much more eager to trust the Lord when it makes sense to us and what it's what we want and when it makes us happy. We love the Lord when his leadership is like that. But when he leads us into trials and times that stretch our faith, we kind of go, I don't know. I'm not sure this is of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not ready to jump on with that. See, Peter was eager to see the Lord. Hey, it's the Lord. He's in the water. But, but the next thing that's going to happen is his loyalty is going to be challenged. I think we're all excited about moving into a new building, right? Have a permanent space, especially because the Lord's leading has been unmistakable. But, but what happens, I thought last night, what happens if the next steps are challenging and they stretch us? Are we going to be just as quick to say, it's the Lord? Oh, there's a trial now? It's the Lord. 
Yes, this is great. This is of the Lord. No, we usually only say it's the Lord when it's easy. The disciples initially were hesitant, but then they understood. The calling was new. God's presence was new. The power was new. The assignment was new. And their hearts and minds were changed. And instead of saying, we don't know, Lord, is this right? All of a sudden, they got on board and they trusted the Lord to be with them and to lead them and to guide them into very difficult circumstances where they had to stand alone from the Lord. Listen, our assignment is less daunting, but we need the same confidence and courage. So let me finish. I'm done, but I want you to keep listening for a second. Let me finish with just the reminder of the evidence of how the Lord's been working. It was only six weeks ago, six weeks ago, that Jason Cho showed up at our Sunday service and asked to talk to me. Six weeks ago, we had run into a scheduling conflict here at the Marriott. We we had we had felt that the relationship was changing with the village that owns the ministry center. And here comes Jason, and, and he says, I've got a building I want you to look at. And very quickly, that, that turned into a serious discussion because I had been saying, there's not a building in town that seats three or 400 people that's ready to walk into. Lovely faith from your pastor, right? There's not a building. I looked at everything. I've looked at all this real estate. We've walked through buildings. We've analyzed. I've spent time in there. There's nothing out there. We've got two real estate agents working. Couldn't find it. I, I, and I said, not seven, eight weeks ago, there's not a building that seats that many people that's ready to go. And here comes Jason. I got a building I want you to see. And after talking and, and, and kind of negotiating, we came together as a congregation to pray. And since that time, literally zero doors have closed. God has not only confirmed our move there, but he's closed some of the doors in the places we now occupy. And Jason has been very generous. And he's negotiated and given us a very helpful rent price. And everything's in motion. And you as a congregation, you have been so willing to adapt. And when we said, we're going to be there on the 10th, we gave you one week notice. And you showed up by the dozens with cleaning cloths ready to go. You didn't even have to get an assignment. You just walked in and started working. I'm telling you, I've been a pastor for 27 years. That's unheard of. That's unheard of. You've been excited and supported and you've trusted those working out the details and making the decisions. And then we've seen the Lord move. Over the last year, God has provided special gifts from outside the congregation that were there as a deposit in the savings account to prepare us for this time so that we'd be able to make purchases. And then just this week, we've seen the Lord's hand. Let me tell you what's happened this week. We have to spend a lot of money on chairs. We have to buy chairs. Somebody calls me this week and says, if the congregation will give 5000 of that, I'll match it. Now, we'll tell you next week how that's going to happen. Then, then we're looking at carpet, and one of our members goes down to talk to somebody they know on carpet, and the person says, oh, I listen to the podcast every week. I'll help you out with that. Then we go, another member goes to talk about signage, and we're thinking, this is going to be expensive. And the person says, oh, I, I know Pastor Rhodes because my kids go to school with him. And I tell you what, I'll give you all the labor. And then there are aesthetic changes that are being 
being allowed. Somebody's helping us with that. I mean, I mean, this is the Lord, right? That's not just, oh, it's just a coincidence. I was talking to my father on Friday. And we were talking about finances and how things are tight, and how the economy's bad. And he said something that stuck with me. He said, Paul, the economy doesn't account for miracles. That's right. That's right. These are the times we want. These are the times we want where we can look at it and say, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord's doing this. This is not our plan. Six weeks ago, if you had said, where are we going to be in May? I would have said, you're looking at it. Right here. Six weeks ago, we didn't know what we were going to do about the ministry center because we knew as of September, we were out. What's the backup plan? Didn't have one. God provides. And when the Lord is present and he's at work, listen now, congregation, we're done. It should build our faith to maximum levels. This is not the time to be shy with our faith. This is the time to say, praise God for what he is doing. We will keep following, and God will lead. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for what you have done. There is no way we can think for a moment that we're worthy of it. There is no way we can think for a moment that we deserve any of your help, any of your grace, any of your mercy, any of your forgiveness, any of your love. It is all because of you. And Lord, we praise you this morning for what you are doing in our midst. We praise you for the good and for the difficult. We praise you for the clear, joyful leading, and we praise you for the trials. Lord, you have your hand on our lives. You have our hand, your hand on our families. You have our hand on our congregation. And we ask you this morning to continue to keep your hand on us and that we would walk faithfully with you Lord, never deviating, never wandering, never stubborn like the Israelites in the wilderness, resistant and proud. Lord, break our pride. Keep us humble and sensitive before you. Because, Lord, we want to serve you and we want to glorify your name and we want to declare your name in this dark world and tell people that Jesus saves. And, Lord, may our message be strong. And may our ministry be a powerful witness in this city and in this area of the country that your name would be proclaimed and that you would get glory. Lord, we pray for a harvest of people that receive you, receive your gift of grace. And Lord, we pray for strength in the battle, for confidence in your sufficiency, for faith that is overwhelming. Lord, continue to move, continue to bless. You have been so faithful. We can't say it enough how grateful we are. We love you and we praise you. Father, encourage us and strengthen us this week as we go about the work of ministry, as we talk to people about Jesus Christ. Give us strength and power by your spirit and confidence that you are faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.